Hey guys, welcome back on the Blockworks Macro YouTube channel. This is Alf speaking and today's guest is Julian Brigden. Julian is the co-founder of MI2 Partners and a very well-known macro strategist. Julian, how are you doing? I'm doing well, mate. I'm doing very well. Um, we just got our first snow outside. I'm in Chicago, actually, at the moment. Well, Vale's been getting lots of snow. And unfortunately, <laughs> I'm not there at the moment. I'm in Chicago. So it's kind of useless snow and a pretty shitty day. But, um, the, uh, but, the, but the markets are fun. Yeah, that's true. And it's always a pleasure to have a macro chat with somebody as knowledgeable as you. And uh, why don't we actually start on what we're discussing offline, which is that... Um, this very vicious bear market rally, um, which seems actually to have legs, uh, even mm. for, to go further, perhaps by uh, until the end of the year, to say the least. It's actually uh, pretty interesting as a phenomenon if you look at underlying macro drivers. Eh? You, we talked about Europe or the US, so why don't you give us a bit your uh, overlook of what's going on? Yeah, you know, look, uh, it is. It's it's. Uh... It's really quite amazing. And I, I look at it, you know, and maybe the guys, people are going to be right and we're going to get that rally into year end. Um, and then typically, you know, when you get sort of allocations to 401ks that could possibly go through into January, um, you know, if it does, if it does, uh, I think it's going to put these central banks in an incredibly difficult situation, um, particularly the Fed. Um, you know, because I think, you know, don't get me wrong. I th I've been saying for a couple of months, we were a month early, uh, having been really very aggressive on the inflation side, Alf. Uh, very, very aggressive. Um, you know, we put our in first kind of inflation trades on in, in uh, November of 2020. And, you know, our first piece in 2021 was, you know, inflation is going to be the, the biggest variable of, of the year. No one kind of believed us. Um, our models were just talking about rampant inflation right into uh, this autumn. Um, in March of last year, we came out and said inflation in uh, in the eurozone will hit double digits. And I remember doing a virtual roadshow because we were still sort of in COVID, and people thought I was clinically insane. Right? I mean, I had a couple of calls from from some of your old peers, and they're like, "What, mate? What? <laughs> what are you saying?" Right? Um, so. You know, we do we do think it's it's peaked, but I think that, and you know, you can see the reaction in the market. I mean, I do think it's a little it's a little early uh, to be really blowing the all clear. The models do show, uh, you know, CPI probably dropping uh, towards about six six and a half, um, but then it's it's seeming to sort of flatline a little bit around those kind of levels. Um, PPI is going to depend an awful lot on what happens to diesel this winter. And we all know that there's a really dangerous sort of setup in the diesel market. I mean, it's coming down, you know, uh, right now. So that's, that's fine. We're getting that kind of, that kind of benefit. Um, but there is a, there's a, there's a big risk uh, of a squeeze as we go into, uh, into year end. Um, but even if things do calm down, I think the fundamental thing that people don't understand, Alf, and the Fed's been quite, they have to be circumspect about how they talk about this issue, right? Because, you know, it's a political hot potato. That even if inflation comes down, headline inflation starts to come down, they cannot back away. And the reason that they can't back away is very simply that the labor market is just completely out of whack. 
right? Whether you look at jolts, whether you look at teen employment, whether you look at the uh, things like the NFIB survey, they're all telling you that there's way too much demand for labor. Now it's coming off its highs uh, in the ISM uh, conference call they talked about. They have this metric where they look at hires to what they call force manage. So force manage could be either layoffs, short-term week, or, you know, or furloughs, okay? And that thing had dropped from eight hires to one force managed to three hires and one force managed. But the point is, it's still hires, right, in aggregate. And so, yes, we've come off the top, um, but it's just simply not enough to slow down. And without that slowdown uh, in the labor market, then even if your headline rates of inflation start to fall, that wage pressure, which is basically the kernel of core inflation, is going to remain very elevated. So yes, we'll probably see, you know, we could see inflation drop to, headline inflation drop to five, let's say. But if core's still sitting there at four and a half to five, that's way over target. And the Fed then is going to have to be, remain very, very tough. And I think, you know, we can delve in this one a little bit later, but I don't think people have any understanding how hard and tough it is to deliver a slowdown in, in inflation, even using this relatively benign policy that the Fed seems to be singling in on. And as for continental Europe, you know, when I look at the DAX, I mean, they're still expecting, I mean, albeit relatively small earnings growth next year, they're expecting 10% earnings growth in 2024. And I don't know about you, but when I look at my forward models for German growth and German industrial production and consumer confidence in Europe, I think we'll be bloody lucky to avoid the worst recession in 30 years. So a lot of this seems to me to be positioning, hopium, you know, call it what you will. Um, and I think we're going to run into, and you saw it, you know, at the beginning of the week from Chris Waller and various other policymakers, you know, a massive degree of pushback against this. The last thing they're going to want is a repeat of the summer rally. Yeah. And Julian, I tend to share a lot of what you just said. Let's talk about the US first and then we'll, yeah. we'll talk about Europe as well. So um, I want to back out with some statistics, what you just said, which is it's very difficult to bring down inflation, at least very rapidly. In the US, over the last 100 years, there have been 11 instances where the US entered a recession with inflation way above the Fed target. Now we're talking about the bloody recession, a serious recession. Yes. Event. Serious and recession. nevertheless, it took on average 16 months of a recession to bring down inflation back to 2%. Now 16 to bring it down in what? Sorry, Alf, you broke up a sec. Uh, sorry, I said it took on average 16 months to bring inflation down to the Fed target of 2%. Now, 16 okay. months of a recession is quite a long way to go. And yeah. we haven't started the recession yet because, as you just said, the labor market is very strong, let alone the GDP measurements. But the labor market remains status quo basis on a, on a spot basis pretty strong. So yeah. we are not on a, in a recession yet. And if we enter one tomorrow, history would say it takes at least 16 months until you have done enough destruction. Yeah, I mean, I was looking at a similar sort of thing. I looked at every single recession in the post-war period, and I looked at what happened to um, inflation from the start of the recession to one year after. And the average decline was uh, headline 1.9, and core, this is CPI, and core 0.9. And 
you know, you, you look at this thing and you go, okay, you know, part of the problem is that the Fed, I think, rightly understands that, you know, we have a lot of financial instability. There's a huge degree of leverage in the system, right? And I think they're very wary about the market, you know, fully price discovering under their own, uh, under their own steam. And the, and the Fed, you know, I think would be, would be concerned about that. They don't want to tip us back into a sort of GFC situation. And then we get back to all the problems of the zero bound and blah, blah, bloody blah, blah, blah again, right? But the reality of the situation is if you look at the steps that they've taken and you look at, say, you know, where real Fed funds are, for example. I mean, essentially, real Fed funds, I mean, there were two, there were two ways that, there are two ways that you tackle inflation, uh, typically. The first way was that you raise rates to above inflation. Let's call that the Volcker option. And the second option is the kind of Greenspan option, which he pursued in the mid-90s, where you kind of push rates to mildly restrictive, and then you kind of leave them there for this extended period, right? You know, um, but I don't think people understand how long that extended period has to be. We're not talking, you know, the, 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 the bond market is starting to cut in, price cuts in, in, um, in Q3 of next year. And really under this policy, you could be on hold pretty much on hold you know you're just a little bit in a recession but for years if not decades i mean the san francisco fed wrote a paper on this stuff um on this sort of greenspanian policy and came to the conclusion that it's not really credible because it just takes so bloody long to bring inflation back to target right and they were talking about inflation in the in the threes right yeah i mean this is what but you do not to your point you do not bring down inflation unless you have acute pain. Yeah. Uh, another historical example, this time in Europe, that actually still validates your thesis that it's going to take long um, and it's going to actually need interest rates to be in restrictive territory for quite a long time is in Europe in the 90s. Well, there was no Europe back then, but I used yeah. France. Yeah. As France as a barometer for the average European country. In yeah. 1989, between 1989 and 1991, CPI in France was over 4% for two years in a row. So, you know, the Bank de France, the central bank, decided to raise interest rates. And they raised interest rates to um, 85 to 9%. Five-year French government bonds were trading yeah. there for two and a half years, Julian. 400 <laughs> basis points above inflation. And then finally, at the third year, inflation went down to 2%. But that's two years of very, very, very restrictive interest rates. Correct. And okay, maybe okay, the economy in the 90s cannot be compared to the economy today. True, but we are not raising rates to 9% today. We are looking at no. 5%. So that's the correction due to demographics and that, etc. Yeah. But the length of this tight monetary policy might actually be a bit longer than, than people expect. I think, I think this is this is the point, Alf. I mean, I think people don't... I mean, I, you know, I'm looking right here as we talk at a, at a real Fed funds chart going back to 1955, right? So real Fed funds are minus 466 basis points, right? At the easiest uh, that they were uh, in 1975 was 500. And then just before Volcker came in, right, uh, they were minus 500 again. So essentially, despite all the tightening, we are still at the easiest level of Fed funds that we've been in in the last 
you know, 65 years, basically, right? And when I look at something like um, nominal GDP, right, so real, real GDP plus inflation, um, and you look at where Fed funds are typically uh, within a tightening cycle, they typically reach around plus 100 basis points relative to nominal GDP. We're still at minus uh, 600 basis points, right? I mean, this policy is still incredibly easy. And I think, you know, the Fed doesn't want to break the economy, but the longer they end up with this pissing match with the equity market and with broad financial conditions, the greater the risk actually they they do it. Yeah, I think you're right. And obviously we're looking at spot uh, figures now, both for spot Fed funds and spot inflation Correct. Reasonably, there will be some convergence in the first half of next year. Correct. And I, yeah. And I, and I look at that, you know, I've written this as a sort of how do you apportion this kind of 700 basis points to spread between where rates kind of should be, right, and where nominal GDP is. And I think you're right. I mean, let's take that 700 basis points. Let's probably take another 200 off uh, CPI. Let's take another... So we're down to 500. Let's take another, you know, let's, let's be aggressive. Let's put another 100 onto Fed funds, right? So that gives you 400. Then, you know, how do you apportion that? 400 off real GDP, right? I mean, 400 off real GDP, I mean, that's a pretty ugly recession, right? And if it doesn't happen, then you've got to rejig it. Then you've got to say, okay, well, you know, let's say it's let's say it's four hundred off uh, off inflation. You still got three hundred to a portion. I mean, you know, this this thing becomes quite hard. Yes, that's basically the mathematics is very simple. If um, you want to believe that the bond market is right. Let's take it as, a, as an assumption. The only yeah. way it can be right with that forward curve priced in is if we have a pretty ugly recession in 2020. Correct. That, that and the way. equity market isn't pricing that. That's the, that's the dichotomy. Yes. That's utterly the dichotomy. One of these markets is going to be utterly wrong, I fear. Um, and look, I'm, bo- I'm long bonds for the first time I've been in two and a half years, bought them, you know, last week. Um, but I'm only long the long end. I'm not touching the short end because I fear the Fed may just have to keep keep going. Um, but, you know, to me, that's just a trade right here, right now. It's not I mean, a structural. This is going back down to 25, you know, 50 basis points, 10 years or something stupid, right? Yes. And the other thing, which is also very interesting in the equity market is the risk premium itself, because with risk-free rates at 5% in the very front end, if you look at these valuations um, where people say, yeah, it's cheap because it has repriced down, whatever, 20% is the top. Well, with earnings being basically a negative story next year, you're looking at basically sitting on a negative carry kind of asset where, where earnings are going right. to be downgraded one way or another. And you're looking right. at valuations where your risk-free rate now to discount these valuations against is 5% in the US right. it's 3% in Europe. So right. that also makes this dichotomy a bit strange between equity markets trying to take the piss at Powell basically and challenging right. is, is, is the idea every yeah. time. And the bond market on the other end being right about pricing what it's pricing only if it's accompanied with a recession. So how do we Correct. actually 
put all of this together, Julian? Like, where is the trade? Where is the, the relative value trade? Where, where is the... I mean, look, my, my, my gut is, look, I think, I think the equity market is being overly focused on uh, inflation. They've been overly focused on rates, and they're not considering that strength of the overall market, which the Fed also has to address, right? I don't even really care if inflation were at target. At these levels of unemployment, the Fed would be, and with this level of labor demand, the Fed would still be raising rates. Right, so, so equity guys have to get that involved. But even if they say stop rates, Alf, right, I think uh, what you've got to bear in mind is that they're still going to be doing QT. And to me, this is the singularly more important metric when it comes to equities. I've always, you know, the, the, the euphemism I say is the Fed created a crack addict to whom they've become beholden, right? So they created a crack addict in the in the equity market and the and the equity market was was hooked on that crack of liquidity right now if you're a crack addict you don't really care how much you pay for your crack right if the price of crack goes up you're just going to turn more tricks or nick more cars right or you know break into more houses to get the money right what you really care is the availability of that crack and so to me, QT is, is much more important. And kind of when I look at, you know, metrics of sort of net liquidity in the system, uh, it's been declining that the, the, uh, the market is pretty heavily correlated to that. But for the moment, as you move into year end, it's going to be relatively flattish and actually has risen very slightly as you move into year end. So, uh, you know, I think as you move into next year, it should, that that dynamic will change. But you know, it just it just creates this this problem for for the Fed that they just have to continue to remain very very tough. Um, and you know, I just see this this bounce. Call it. You know, I see the I see the bounce in equities. And I'm look, I'm not dismissive. I you know, maybe the damn thing goes to you know the. I mean, I look at the 50-week moving average. Maybe it goes back up to those levels. Um, and you're looking, in that case, I think at 41.60 or something. Um, but uh, at that level, that, that level, I'm a seller. Because I just, I don't see, Alf, a way to square this circle that delivers you a higher equity market even if inflation comes off the boil, where the Fed can truly back off. Yeah. So let's say let's say forty two hundred for the S and P. Let's say we have right. a year end market rally, Santa Claus rally, whatever yeah. you want to call it, right? And the market takes the piss at Powell and says, "Hey, we have a negative CPI print or a negative surprise in CPI. Yeah. I'm going to chase you and check your credibility. I'm going to just buy stocks and lever up all the risk parity again, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. So the S and P goes to forty two hundred. And then let's say that earnings next year do not drop. They actually stay in the 220 area. Let's be- Yeah, because they don't deal with nominal GDP, right? They don't slow it down, right? So let's say, let's say they don't grow, they don't drop. Let's say we have a mediocre year, like, you know, like 2019, earnings growth, yeah. single digits percent. You're looking at a PE at that point, priced out of the earnings of 19. But at the same right. time, at the same time, if nominal GDP doesn't drop, remember your equation before, Julian, the Fed right. can't even think about dropping interest rates, which means you right. are looking at buying the S&P at 19 times PE with your risk-free rate likely to be 5% or higher 
for the foreseeable right. future. So 19 PE at that point makes up, if I'm not mistaken, I'm doing the cuts now, roughly 5% earnings yield. It is the right. same risk-free rate. So you're buying right. equities at a 0% equity risk premium at that point. Right. What? I know. I agree with you, mate. But this, is, this goes back to this. Look, I mean, we have taught a whole generation or, uh, and multiple generations over a whole generation that you always buy the dip, right? That you always buy the dip. And I think it's even more serious than that, Alf, right? I think, you know, I talk to my clients a lot about this thing called hyper-financialization. So in other words, this correlation between the real economy and the financial economy, right? Whereby in the, if logic, if you sat down and you said, you know, which one's the chicken, which one's the egg? right? Is it the financial markets, the chicken, are they the egg, or is the real economy the chicken, you know, or the egg? And, and logic would dictate that the real economy should be the chicken, right? The real economy should dictate wages, profit, inflation, right? It should dictate what happens in financial markets. The reality of the situation, however, is that in the US in particular, that the financial economy is the chicken, because of the behavior of CEOs, that we have created this situation whereby the, the behavior of CEOs and the reaction function of CEOs to the movements in their equity prices is what leads the economy. Hence, why we are seeing layoffs in the tech sector, right? We're seeing layoffs in the tech sector because of the movement in the stock price, not because the economy was weak. It's because CEOs are simply shepherds of their equity price. They are only paid and remunerate it to jam that equity price higher. And the minute that it falls, they go straight for the, to the cost-cutting cupboard, come out with an ax and start slashing capex and start slashing employment. The problem for the Fed though is when you're trying to address that overheating labor market is that's what you wanna see. So if the equity market goes up, Alf, it's actually doubly worse for the Fed because what it'll actually mean is that employment market will not right size. And those higher wage levels will come embedded in the system and that will keep your core inflation significantly higher and keep those inflation expectations higher. So I think the Fed, and I've said this to my clients, is, is in a pissing match with the equity market on numerous levels, financial conditions and the behavior of CEOs. And when I look at the aggregate labor market, so you take number of people working, how much they earn an hour, how many hours they work, you're still looking at growth levels of eight and a quarter, eight and a half percent, right? That's why Americans were so able to afford inflation, right? Everyone looked at average hourly earnings mm -hmm. and they said, oh, look, average hourly earnings are negative, but you don't take home what you paid an hour. You take home what you're paid an hour, multiply how many hours are you working? And in an environment where labor was short, if you had a job, you had massive amounts of overtime, right? So you were taking home at the highs over 10% pay. So you could fund, you might be pissed off, right? That prices were higher, but you could fund it. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is just a fucking great big problem for the Fed. Right? And I just think, you know, we saw Waller on Monday come out, who, you know, is very, very close to Powell. Um, 
you know, in an, and, and please, 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 for your listeners, you need to understand that the Fed is not a democracy, right? This is not like some of the other central banks where everyone gets a vote, really. This is an autocracy, right, where the chairman says, this is what I want, and if you do not like it, you can dissent, right? That's what dissent. No other central bank has dissent like the Fed does. Right. So if if Brainard doesn't like higher Fed funds and she thinks, you know, they should be raising the inflation expectation, you know, inflation target, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and adding financial stability to the to the docket. Right. And all these other weirdo bloody ideas, then she can fucking descend. But Powell's until 2028. So fuck off. And he's by far the most hawkish guy on the board, with the exception of Waller. I mean, the um, I, I'm always impressed by hearing Powell at every single press conference, Julian, telling us um, we will keep at it. He uses this um, sentence every time. Yeah. And he repeated Volcker is zero, and Volcker's last book is called Keeping at It. I mean, right. the guy... Exactly. The guy, there is, there's a reason he said, uses that phraseology, right? And the, the guy will... It's been very, very clear, I think, since actually March, April last year. He, he really changed his tune and then in Jackson Hole, he really doubled down and then still markets are looking at another July 2.0 trying to chase him up. And again, they might be right. I mean, in macro, we have to be open to every potential Correct. outcome. But as we discussed, um, we might want to rally a bit further into year-end, but if you're a long-term asset allocator, this is a really complicated environment as you're basically I mean, look, this is a fantastic point, I mean, Alf. If you're a long-term asset allocator and you look at some of these, you know, certainly the uh, the pension funds with um, specific um, pension obligations, right? So defined benefit, uh, defined uh, contribution, uh, sorry, defined benefit uh, pensions, right? This is this is an absolute layup up here to be selling risk assets like stocks and to be buying bonds. Right, because for the first time, these guys have got positive funding calculations. Right, they haven't had that for decades. Right, and you know they don't need to take as much risk now when you know sovereign bond yields and super high credit rated you know corporates are yielding these sorts of levels. So you know we'll see. Um, but my gut is is you you're going to have to fade this rally, and my gut is that the Fed in the equity market. Um, I'm quite favorably inclined to the long end of the bond market, not that I don't think that the Fed will have to fight this, but I think what will happen is two-year yields will remain under pressure in the long end. That will leave the long end somewhat safe, somewhat safe, and it will at least carry nicely, even if it doesn't rally a huge amount. Yeah. Well, Julian, it is always a pleasure to chat macro with you. Always very well data-driven and grounded uh, views and your experience speaks by itself. If people want to find more about you and guys, I mean, how don't you know about Julian already? But in case they don't, <laughs> where do they find you? So they can um, so they can follow me on Twitter at JulianMI2 for as long as we can keep using Twitter, Alf, anyway, until he, <laughs> until he completely, Musk completely screws the damn thing up. Um, and then we'll have to find some other sub stack or something, I don't know, to go on to. Um, alternatively, if you're interested in talking to us on the business side, contact support at mi2partners.com. Julian, thanks for being here. Always a pleasure. Talk soon. Pleasure, mate. Cheers. Cheers.